This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. Bernie Madoff had it all. A successful career on Wall Street. The all-American family, along with wealth and fame. But from the very beginning, he risked it all by running what became the world's biggest Ponzi scheme. In the process, destroying many people's lives, including his own. Join me as I discuss Bernie Madoff with Oscar-nominated and two-time Emmy-winning filmmaker and documentary pioneer Joe Berlinger, executive producer and director of the new Netflix docuseries Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. Along the way, we pick up some investing tips, learn how to properly pronounce Bernie Madoff's name, and how to make a film about financial fraud sexy. Stay tuned. Joe Berlinger, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Uh, very good, thanks. Uh, looking forward to uh, the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. Um, uh, just to remind our listeners and and viewers that uh, we'll be talking about we're talking about the film uh, Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street. It's a new Netflix docu series premiering on January fourth. So, welcome again, Joe. It's uh, it's an honor to have you on. And uh, maybe you can get us started since uh, we no one's had a chance to see this yet, except myself and a few other lucky uh, people out there. Um, what is Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street, all about? It's got a good Netflix title, kind of says it all in a way, but maybe you yeah. can give us a, a, a synopsis of yeah, It's, it's, uh, it's of actually, I would call it Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street, because it's it's Bernie Madoff, although some people do call him Bernie Madoff, but uh, I would say it's Bernie Madoff. <laughs> okay. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a deep dive into... Uh, the world's largest Ponzi scheme that happened uh, in in 2008. Uh, mm-hmm. Bernie Madoff stole $64 billion and people don't really fully understand the story. And I wanted to take it on. I've, I've kind of am known for the true crime thing and I've come off of a whole series mm-hmm. of um, serial killer shows about Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy okay. and, etc and you know those take their emotional toll <laughs> and i wanted to focus on a financial serial killer this time because that's what i think of <laughs> bernie is a financial serial killer the, the 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 level of destruction on people's lives was was horrendous and um they're actually really you know there's of course a couple of um great scripted dramas most notably the wizard of lies that was on hbo that covered this story but there's hasn't really been a deep dive dissecting the actual ponzi scheme the way i think we do in the show and more importantly people who know the story of bernie madoff and the historic Hmm. largest ponzi scheme in history 64 billion dollars somehow the story has morphed into this idea that this guy was this incredible evil genius who single-handedly scammed people out of that much money. But what the doc series really goes into, I think for the first time is just the level of co-conspirators and level of ineptitude and malfeasance on wall street that allowed him to flourish for so long. Um, And it just, it, it just seemed like, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that the show would be coming out around the time of yet another financial fraud, the FTX scandal with right, right. Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, but it's interesting that th- this has happened because as the Bernie Madoff 
mm. show demonstrates uh, people just look the other way when greed is involved. Yeah. I mean, so since uh, I think that's, that's excellent because it answers all those questions. Why make this now? What is it that we're going to see that wasn't already uh, sh- shown in the past or at least covered in uh, the news media? I mean, who, so who got rich besides Madoff and his, you know, and his, maybe his family? And close, closest conspirators. There, there is. There, it's a wider web, as you point out in the in the series. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly all of the hedge funds, and there were about seventy in the United States and two hundred uh, outside of the United States. In fact, the fraud was bigger outside of the United States, meaning European money coming in to Bernie's hedge fund. Um, there was there was a, a lot of institutions that were making a lot of money on him. And one of the reasons and one of the great red flags is the way the way it worked and the way the hedge fund industry worked is that there were this thing called feeder funds. You know, hmm. hedge funds would collect money from investors and pool it together and then send it to Bernie as the money manager to invest in what they thought was his, you know, incredibly successful fund. What they didn't know is it was all a Ponzi scheme. Um, but the lack of due diligence on the part of these hedge funds was incredible. They, 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 they all looked the other way because Bernie offered them that they could keep all the fees themselves. Normally when a theater fund sends money to Bernie to invest or to any hedge fund to invest, they split all the fees and the fees are quite rich. It's, it's the two and 20 rule. Mm, You know, normally a hedge fund would, you know, keeps 2% of the assets. So if there's a million dollars, they keep 2% of that. And it's a lot more than a million dollars. Um, and if the million dollars then grows to $2 million, they get 20% of that increase. Normally that's split between the feeder fund and the investing hedge fund. But Bernie said to the people bringing him the money, oh, you keep all the fees, you know, don't worry about it. I'll just make money on the trades and not to get too technical here, but the money on trades is a very thin margin. The real money is keeping a percentage of the assets and keeping a a 20% of the profits. And Mm -hmm. he let everyone keep that money. So hard questions weren't asked by all the invest, all the, the pooled funds that invested into Madoff, you know, basic questions, you know, uh, uh, about the viability of the fund. Um, so, you know, we, we saw, you know, greed in operation here. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that, that's really what it gets down to, isn't it? Just in many ways, just pure greed, because, I mean, I, I think you have one, uh, one person on camera, but talking about his own father, really, but says if it's too good to be true, then it is. I mean, here you have all these, everyone says this is too good to be true, but they carry on feeding funds to him and, yeah. and looking um, the other way. Totally. I mean, that, and that's, that's a basic rule that I hope all viewers will take away from this. If something looks too good to be true, it probably is. Bernie reported that, you know, 90.96.4% of the time he was profitable, you know, that's just not how finance works. Uh, 
you know, you have good years and bad years, um, mm -hmm. but nobody is consistently profitable. That was a major red flag. I mean, all sorts of red flags. Uh, he was he was using a conservative options strategy called the split strike conversion strategy, which I won't bore you unless you want me to to explain it. But it's actually a very conservative strategy, and yet he was using this conservative strategy to to make outsized gains and nobody questioned that and most glaringly uh because it's an options strategy um options are derivatives of stocks uh the size of his fund would have dictated that if he's using these options he would have to be using more options than are actually in existence and that should have been a red flag um and then there was the institutional or, or regulatory ineptitude. I mean, mm. there was there's one particular character in the show named Harry Markopoulos who right. was it, well it, now he's a fraud investigator, but at the time he worked for a competitive <laughs> hedge fund. He's a mathematician, um, and his job was to try to create products to market. And he took a look at the marketing materials for Bernie's hedge fund and thought within four minutes that this doesn't feel right, that yeah. there's no way that these kinds of profits can be made with this strategy and called it a hedge fund, called it a Ponzi scheme within, you know, the first five minutes of analyzing the numbers and then took it upon himself to go to the SEC, not once, but a dozen times pointing out all of the problems and the SEC just ignored it yeah. repeatedly. Uh, I mean, that's the thing about the most remarkable thing about this story is that it's, you know, gov government regulators, whistleblowers, none of that brought Bernie down. What brought Bernie down was a once in a lifetime black swan event which yeah. was the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, you know, the, the, the mortgage market meltdown caused all hedge funds and, and many investors, they, they, they wanted to get out of anything they were invested in and, and stockpile cash. That's what happens in a massive meltdown, uh, the likes of which we hadn't seen since the Great Depression uh, in 2008. And it was only because people were calling in their chips because of an other situation, the mortgage meltdown, that people called in to redeem their money that Bernie got caught with his pants down because a Ponzi scheme by definition is you bring new investor money in to pay off old investors because in fact, you're not doing any investing. You're just sitting on cash and using it for your own purposes. And if you have more new investors, putting money in than old investors cashing out, you know, or, or redeeming some or all of their money, which is normal, you know, you're, mm. you're a fund and some people come in and some people come out and that's the name of the game. But if you have more people taking their money out than are putting their money in, mm. then the scheme collapses. And that's what happened as a result of the mortgage meltdown of 2008.
And that mortgage meltdown was also a product of lack of regulatory oversight or proper regulation. So, I mean, Absolutely. one thing. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the thing. I hope people understand that you have to take control of your own money, and you have to truly understand that Wall Street is a for-profit business. They're not here to be your friend or to put their arm around you and take care of you. And you know all these commercials that talk about you know your wonderful retirement and we're going to get you there. They're, they're they're not there as an advisor or a friend. They're there to make money off you. And most people do it legitimately, but there's a lot of greed and and you know funky stuff that goes on. And you just you know obviously if you got your you know. I trust Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Van, you know, the big institutions that have your money, you know, I think all do a really good job of doing the right thing, but it's anything that seems a little different. People need to be wary of because often it's fraud. And ironically, we've seen it just happen again with FTX and, you know, um, and the similarities are, are, are pretty stark. You know, you have an outside entity, um, uh, you know, somebody with, you know, these sophisticated investors taking money from other people, giving it to FTX without any oversight. And and Sam Bankman-Fried was taking that money and using it to shore up his hedge fund. And the whole thing came tumbling down. Now, it wasn't, you know, what he was doing wasn't really a Ponzi scheme, but the similarity about something seeming too good to be true eliciting the emotion of greed in people and saying, okay, it may be too good to be true, but I don't ask too many questions because this is really good for me. Uh, it, instead of it raising that issue of, gee, this is, this doesn't seem right. Let me look into it. It's like, okay, this doesn't seem right, but I'm making money off it. So I'm not going to ask any questions, you know? And, and Sam Bankman Freed was just, it seems almost destined to happen because we do not as a society, learn any lessons this, and it's happening ever more frequently in in many ways no it's well there's a financial crisis uh, every five to eight years and there's many ponzi schemes and frauds mm. that happen routinely i mean it's you know well, it sounds uh, like you have a sam bankman freed doc in your future <laughs> I don't know. maybe you know I, I think it's been so heavily covered and yeah, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do the Madoff show mm. um, is because I don't think people really understand just how simple the Ponzi was, which mm. makes it so extraordinary that it went on for so long. And again, you know, people think, "Oh, Bernie was this fraudulent guy." No, there was a lot of co-conspirators. There were multiple hedge funds that should have known better. J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, the Ponzi scheme was all that money in and out was one bank account called the famous 703 account, which is the last three mm -hmm. numbers of the bank account was 703. So it's called the 703 account. But normally when you have billions of dollars going in and out of a checking account, anything, any transaction that's suspicious, that's over $10,000 usually generates what's called a suspicious activity report. You know, it is a fundamental tenant of banking. You, you need to know your customer and they should be monitoring. And the reason the transactions looked funky was there was no counterparty. It was just money moving back and forth between entities and very large, you know, within yeah. um, Bernie's sphere. And it should have it should have uh, raised some red flags. Uh, well, I mean, 
I mean, of course. I mean, my bank gets in touch with me if I go to a different part of the country and spend uh, a little bit more than I usually do. You know, or you know. (laughs) So I can tell you, you, I can tell you if if if, and that that account had billions and billions of dollars flowing through it, and I can tell you if that bank account was. You know, Domus. You know, if the business behind that bank account was in Mexico, they would assume it was, you know, or oh. or, or be suspicious yeah. about drug cartel money or something like yeah. that. And it would have generated suspicious activity reports. Now, I don't, I, I can't say that I feel Chase knew there was a Ponzi scheme, but all the mechanisms in place to mm. to do the normal due diligence were cast aside because it was too profitable to have billions of dollars yeah. in cash flowing through your bank is my opinion you know yeah. i i want to get actually get back to the point about uh, the simplicity of his ponzi scheme but we'll give our uh, listeners a quick quick break we'll be right back with uh, joe berlinger exec producer and director of the new netflix docuseries madoff the monster of wall street streaming on netflix from january 4th You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with award-winning filmmaker Joe Berlinger, executive producer and director of the new Netflix docuseries, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street, streaming on Netflix from January 4th. Um, we're talking about um, Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme, which uh, you've, you've, you've defined what a Ponzi scheme extremely well uh, to your listeners, but just to put it in even more stark terms, he didn't invest a dime, right? I mean, it's not a single dime of it got invested anywhere except yeah, that's in, in his pocket. You know, that's the interesting, you know, the other, you know, other Ponzi schemes in history were like often a guy is trading and he's just makes some bad trades or, and loses money and it kind of morphs into a Ponzi scheme. The fascinating thing about Bernie's Ponzi scheme is that literally from day one, there was literally no investment investment. He, he was just taking people's money, creating fake statements, you know, literally going into the, this is, you know, in the, in the, you know, before computers or whatever, you know, he would look at the newspaper or his minions would, you know, look at the newspaper and, and based on historical information, you know, anyone can bet on yesterday's horse race and win, obviously. And that's what he was doing. He would, you know, go back to historical data, pick a time to buy the stock and a time to sell the stock fictitiously because he actually wasn't doing either and put that down on a statement and send it off to people, you know? And and the thing is, he didn't have to do it, did he? I mean, he had this legit business, relatively legit business. It was doing really well. Um, he was the toast of Wall Street. I think he was head of NASDAQ for a little while. Uh, but yet to go to all this, tri- I mean, you know, I mean, not to give no spoiler alerts, you know, spoiler alert maybe, but uh, I mean, it's a great scene where you talk about these two floors where the where the uh, activity had his legit business on what is the 19th floor and then the this Ponzi schemes on the 17th floor and the guy said it's like going back in time. But they, they go, they went, the amount of effort he had to go through to create these false trades to keep this thing going, he could have, he could have probably 
done all right without doing that. Why did he do it? That is the sad reality. You know, I mean, nobody really knows when the Ponzi scheme began. Um, uh, I personally think from day one, from the day he, Mm. you know, in the, when he was a very young man, he decided to open up shop and become a stockbroker in the wild days of, uh, the stock market. Um, and he invested poorly and there was a crash in 1962 and he lost all of his customers money, which at the time was only $30,000, but you know, in 62, $30,000 for a young man is, is a lot of money. His father-in-law bailed him out and loaned him the $30,000 to give back to his clients. But he decided to not tell his clients the truth. In other words, everyone else lost a shitload of money yeah. uh, because of this big crash that happened. And he told his clients he got out at the right time and, and sent them back their money with even a little profit. And he looked like a genius. And he decided he, you know, that guiding principle, he decided he'd rather be a liar than a failure because failure haunted him. His father was a failure. And so he was motivated by not being a failure. So I think the Ponzi scheme began early, you know, or, or playing with the fast and loose with the rules began very early. He always had, he always had two businesses, you know, a legitimate business and, and, uh, and a business on the side managing other people's money. You know, he was, uh, you know, he was a he was a broker in the '60s, which all that meant was he would buy and sell stocks uh, and make a little money on the spread. But in addition to that, he had a side business as an investment advisor. In the '70s, he became a market maker, uh, which is the buyer and seller of a stock of of last resort. That's a legitimate business. But on the side, he continued to have this investment advisory business, and the two businesses kind of grew in parallel. So I think he was always. Uh, he was always playing with the rules and at some point it turned into a a Ponzi scheme. But his legitimate business, uh, as you said, would have made him a very successful person. That's the irony uh, of this whole thing. Um, You know, he was one of the big advocates and innovators of electronic trading. The stock market fundamentally changed when it got uh, computerized. Mm. Uh, you know, what took weeks, literally in the old days, you know, a transaction took weeks and you physically mailed stock certificates to the to the buyer. And now it's become electronic trading. And he was a big innovator in that. And he also took all the off the market exchanges. And what I mean by that is not the official New York Stock Exchange or American Stock Exchange, but all these smaller exchanges where it was kind of a wild west there was no price transparency you didn't you know a stock could be sold for one price in boston another price in dallas another price in new york there was no it was very risky and 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 opaque until computerized trading and so all these off the market exchanges all became kind of one computer screen so to speak where there was extreme price transparency and that is the forerunner of what became the NASDAQ market. And the NASDAQ market kind of, you know, is one of the big markets now. Apple, Google, yeah. Microsoft all trade on the NASDAQ. And he was one of the big innovators that he was, you know, three times the head of NASDAQ. 
uh, why somebody like this would choose, uh, you know, choose to do this is, you know, is an interesting <laughs> look into psychology. Bernie himself claims it only became a Ponzi scheme when his legitimate business, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s started um, having some solvency issues and he took uh, he took investment advisory money and funneled it to his uh, legitimate business to shore it up. Um, actually, that was late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, that to me sounds way too convenient you know i think he mm. was guilty of this ponzi scheme for decades well and as you say he was always sort of operating outside of the law with this other side this advisory side of things yeah. anyway so yeah. um and there's good examples of that in the throughout the throughout the dock um i mean how do you we're not gonna have too much more of your time i think but how much uh how do you make f you as a filmmaker, how do you make financial fraud interesting? You know, I don't know. Tell me, was it interesting? It, well, I mean, I, 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 yes, it was very interesting. I have to say that I've got an economics background, so you know, it kind of comes to me. You know, I like, I like dramas like Margin Call and those kind of things that have done been done well. To you know, but it's uh, it's not the easiest thing to do, and you've no. you know, you make. No, You've no. got a maths that um, Harry, uh, I forget his name, but the math, the derivatives guy who was, was you know, reporting uh, Madoff to the SEC all the time. Yeah. He comes across really well and interesting. You know, you've got some great, great uh, people that come on camera. I mean, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, uh, we'll see if we'll see if this translates for people. I mean, I personally, you know, interestingly. Or maybe it's only interesting to me, perhaps. But uh, you know, I've I've actually been a, quite a bit of a stock market geek over the years. I, as you know, <laughs> you know, as early as you know, my teens, I was buying stocks, and I'm I, mm -hmm. I, I've been fascinated by the stock market and the financial markets. So, um, you know, it's something that I'm quite knowledgeable about. So I think that helped me be able to talk to people so that things could be explained. I, I do think the big achievement of the show is that very complex concepts um, are delivered in a way that I, I don't think it's too hard to understand the content. And that's what I, you know, I wanted to bring this to life because again, most people think of this story as like one evil genius who manipulated the markets. But to me, it's a much deeper story mm. because I'm knowledgeable enough about the markets that to me, the red flags were so obvious to anybody who is in the business uh i wanted to dissect the ponzi and how it worked and what all those red flags were and why it's representative of such incompetence or worse on the part of a lot of institutions who should have known better because if you can explain it in a way that you can understand then it's then then i wanted people to understand just just how how easy it is to manipulate and cheat the system in part as a cautionary tale so that people become very you know take control of their finances and understand just you know wall street is not your friend i mean you can have a good business relationship with wall street but they are not there to look out for you they are there to make money and so there's certain basic rules of investing that i hope translate to people from watching the show like very simple things like if you don't know what you're investing in you shouldn't invest in it yeah. uh if it looks too good to be true it probably is and bernie's 
reported returns were just ridiculous. Never a down year. That's just imp mathematically impossible in finance. Um, and diversification. One of the reasons so many people got hurt badly is that it wasn't like they had 10% of their money with Bernie. They had their entire life savings. So even forgetting a Ponzi scheme, just in general, you know, if you were 90% in one particular stock like Facebook uh, in the last year, you got killed, you know, because yeah. Facebook collapsed stock mm -hmm. price wise. So like I, just people should understand that fraud happens a lot uh, and that Wall Street does not have your back. I'm not saying don't invest and I'm, you know, places like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or these major institutions that people, you know, I think those are all fine. And I generally trust that system, but anything that's outside of the norm, you gotta, you gotta really think twice about. Joe, I think you're going to have to do an investment uh, podcast or something, you know, just uh, talk, talk, <laughs> talk to us. And, uh, and I feel like almost we're going to need to put all those little disclaimers at the bottom of this, uh, of this uh, episode just to let people uh, know. But uh, uh, so, yeah, I think we are uh, uh, coming to the end of our time. So I want to thank you again. I mean, it, uh, for coming on. Um, I mean, one last question, if I may. I mean, if... Uh, I mean, some would call you a, a pioneer. I know you have many imitators, or at least in terms of just generally in terms of true crime and, and these sort of things. Um, um, how do now that you t you put on Netflix and you see all this stuff on uh, out there, and many of it, some of it yours, obviously, but uh, how do you stand out from the crowd these days, or do you worry about that? Uh, and or maybe what's the key to to making a good doc these days? Oh, I don't pay attention to what other people do or, or think to myself, how do I stand out from the crowd? I, you know, I've been lucky enough to be doing this for 30 years and, uh, you know, I just do what interests me and I hope that, you know, it interests other people. Uh, we do seem to be in kind of a peak true crime moment. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when I was, uh, my first film was brother's keeper in 1992, that Bruce Janowski and I made and yeah. it went to Sundance and won a prize, but nobody wanted to release it. So we self-distributed the film ourselves, believing in the film and, you know, went schlepped 35 millimeter prints from theater to theater. <laughs> and if 400 people watched our movie in a weekend, we'd high five each other and, and, right. and felt like we died and went to heaven. Oh my God, 400 people saw our movie. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Now you push something out on Netflix and hundreds of millions of people see it. And the crime stuff in particular is super popular. So I just feel very lucky to be continuing to do what I do. And, you know, one day if people stop liking it, then I'll go sit on a beach somewhere. Okay. Well, I, th I think even if it falls a bit out of, uh, out of favor, I think uh, we'll still be I don't think your films will be so. Uh, so thank you again for uh, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having uh, Joe Berlinger, uh, the director of the new Netflix docu series Madoff: The Monster of Wall Street. Thanks again for joining us, and it's streaming. Just to remind you, it's streaming on Netflix from January fourth. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Inner Sound Audio in York, England. 
Big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.